Hey Slay Nation, we're back with another episode of the So She Slays podcast. I'm your host, Heather. And in studio today, we have Suzanne Wertheim. She is a national expert on inclusive language and an international keynote speaker. Suzanne, thanks for being here. I am delighted to be talking with you today. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh. Tell me a little bit about yourself before we dive into our conversation. Sure. So right now, the work that I do is anti-bias consulting and workshops and keynotes for companies large and small, 50K to like 100, I'm oh, sorry, 50K, 50 people to like 150,000 people. Um, but before that, I used to be a professor of something called linguistic anthropology. So I've got a PhD in linguistics from Berkeley. Then I taught at places like Northwestern, University of Maryland, UCLA. And when I was at UCLA, I started consulting for tech companies and I left academia and I moved back into applied linguistics, applied language study. And then I moved back up to Oakland. And ever since I live here, I'm doing what is often called DEI work, diversity, equity, inclusion. But I just like to call it anti-bias work because my feeling is who's going to say they're pro-bias, right? Oh, facts, facts. And you've worked with a lot of well-known tech companies, uh, Google, uh was it tesla that i saw yeah and reddit and i've worked with i work with charles schwab and i've worked with news nation and yeah 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 you've been around you've been doing the things i've been Uh, doing the things (laughs) i really want to talk to you about the way language affects our subconscious especially as women um most of our slay nation audience identifies as women and I know there are tons of directions we can take this. So I'm going to let you go ahead and share your expertise on this. Sure. So um, I just even preface, I'm talking to you mostly because I've written a book, right? And so I'm out and about podcasting with different kinds of people. I'm so excited to talk to you all. Um, by you all, I mean you as a person, but then your listeners. Everyone else listening. <laughs> exactly. So hello, listeners. Um, so I've written this book called The Inclusive Language Field Guide, where I lay out the difference between problematic language and inclusive language. And honestly, I could have done everything just about gender, right? Mm. I've got these six principles of inclusive language and gender bias is so pervasive. And the ways that language subtly large and small minimizes women, minimizes girls, minimizes women's contributions, existence, presence, competence. I really could have done it all for women. And then I was like, well, obviously I can't, but so I'm very excited, (laughs) you know, because I need to cover all the other ways that things can be problematic and how can we do better for all different kinds of people. But I was so excited to have been looking for female audiences because honestly, Gender bias is so pervasive and it shows up so much in language. And that is because our conscious minds can think one thing and then our language patterns, which are very often on on autopilot, right? We're so busy thinking about what we're going to say or write that we don't really think about how it's being phrased, but the autopilot and the how and the language patterns very often absolutely completely contradict our conscious thoughts. So our conscious thoughts are usually more modern, right? Like Mm -hmm. all genders are equal. Women can be the centers of their own stories. Women slay. Women can do anything they want to, blah, blah, blah. And then our women should speak. Women should be listened to. Women should speak with authority. Women should speak as much as uh, others. There should be gender equity in talk time. 
women can be trusted sources. All of these things are things that we think consciously, not everybody, but Mm -hmm. really a lot of people. And then when you actually study the language patterns, which you need a, a little bit of expertise to do that, you find that the language patterns directly contradict that really a lot of the time. Oh my gosh. Okay. Tell me, tell me more. Can we explain, can we, do we have a example? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's talk about talk time, right? So there's this idea that all genders should have equal talk time. So let's say, uh Oh, I have to do math now. So it's not 50, 50, it's like 3% non-binary, right? So it's like the 3% and then the remainder 97, 40, whatever it is. So a uh, nearly 50, 50 equitable talk time. But again and again and again, we see that when you study, especially in a workplace, there's also, there's this idea, women talk more, women talk more. Like, I don't know if you've seen uh, bathroom doors where it's a women's door. It's not gender inclusive bathrooms. There's a women's door and a men's door. And the women's door says, blah, 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 all over it. And then the men's door just says, blah, blah. And you're supposed to know that the talky door is the female door because women talk so much. But if you actually measure, especially in workplace scenarios, you find that the talk time for people perceived as female is very, very low. The interruption rate is very high. There's often a lack of uptake of the things that they say. I was just talking about in this keynote, I just did a conference call study where they did, it's 2017, so it's recent enough. They studied 19 years of data, more than 155,000 phone calls. And they found, I'll ask you, what percentage of the time were men talking in these conference calls? So there were work calls. I'm going to guess 80. 92%. Oh, shit. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. 92% of the time. And so I've got other data that shows, I mean, I even have, I'll give you an example. This is back in the day when I was at UCLA. I had students doing a project where they were having um, a person who identified as male, person who identified as female, they didn't know each other. They would record conversations. So talk for 15 minutes and they would record them and run analyses. And one of them was talk time. And they found consistently that the men would talk more. But then I had very clever students who did a feedback loop. So right before November Thanksgiving holiday, they did a a one minute clip of um, the talking and then they brought it home to their families and played it and said, what do you think about the woman who's talking? And again and again, their relatives, older, but not always would say, oh, she talks a lot. Like that girl's a talker. She's really talking 40% of the time. Not not even not even half of the time. So there's this real misperception of how much a woman is talking because, you know, people have this idea that the ideal amount of female talk time isn't 50 50, but zero, zero, 100. So anything, (laughs) anything that's moving away from zero starts to sound like a lot when we're not even at equitable talk time. So that's just one example. Oh, my God. Okay, so is that mostly. So to go back to that 2017 study or mm-hmm. whatnot you just referenced, with the 92% of, of men who found that they found spoke the most or whatnot, um, is it just because that there was mostly men in the workplace because of the time? Because like, is there is there other factors to consider in this? Yeah. I mean, and like, I don't want to delve too deep in that study because it's very, what we call quantitative. It's really numbers. And I'm interested more in like, also what's being said. But in general, what happens is in a workplace encounter, you need to have a three to one female to male ratio to get the gender talk time equitable. So you need 
three women for one man in a room for there to be 50% of the time women are talking and 50% of the time men are talking. Well, good luck getting three women in the boardroom. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and I'll say that. So that leads me into So I, I was saying that there's that's the quantity. I'm interested in what's called qu- qualitative study. So what's going on? So a thing that I find, for example, is um, women, for example, who dissent, who say call out a problem or like in a meeting. Right. I've got multiple, multiple examples because I've run these employee experience studies where I interview people and a lot of the times they're female people and say, has there ever been a time you felt disrespected? Has there ever been a time you felt somebody was pushing you out when you should have been more central? I collect so many stories like this. I never say bias. I never say, it's very scientific. And I have multiple stories where women were in a meeting and uh, at multiple kinds of companies and they call out a problem. For example, oh, I don't think that deadline works. I think we should push it out a bit because I don't think we're taking such and such into consideration. And then a manager pulls them aside and reprimands them for being abrasive or aggressive or having outbursts, outbursts. Whereas they have male colleagues who dissent and nobody says anything, right? So not only should you be talking less if you're a woman, but then you're not supposed to dissent or you're not supposed to call it a problem. Then you're called, I I have a, a thing... I'm interviewing recruiters right now for an article that I'm writing about things job candidates say that get them in trouble. Like, how can you avoid problematic language that says, I can't really work on a diverse team, right? So I'm writing this article and then people unburden themselves to me. So one female recruiter was just telling me, because we're just talking about bad things that people say. And she said, you know, a couple of companies ago, I had a colleague who was just a little senior to me and he cursed a lot. Like he cursed at people. Not like, I like to curse. I was raised by a, like- same, same. I, I I think curse words are very useful a lot of the time, but he would curse in like in an insulting way, like at people and he would raise his voice a lot. So I'm just like, I'm not talking about like amplifying the thing that you're saying and like, like, oh, that was really shitty. I mean, he was like saying to someone, you're a total shithead, right? Which is a, a real difference. That's and he would different. yell, right? Yeah. So he would yell and he would curse and nobody said anything for whatever. He's one of these rock stars, right? So nobody ever said, oh, I wish Michael, whatever his name was, I wish Michael wouldn't curse at people or we should have asked him to tone it down. And then one time, this person I'm talking to, one time this person, something happened that really felt very unfair to her. And she said, hey, I'd like to bring attention to this. I I should be treated with more respect. This really wasn't okay, right? And she made sure, as so many of us do when we're women, right? I'm going to be very like emotion-free. I'm going to be very very like facts-based. I'm going to be very calm, no tears, you know, like everything has to be so calm. And even with all of that, they were like, whoo, you're really being a bitch about this, right? Like, do you, I mean, they used the word bitch with her. Wow. Meanwhile, her colleague is screaming and cursing at people. And one time she says a fact-based thing that she stands up for herself. So it's that kind of inequitable treatment. I, I have a name for it. I talk about it in the book. I call it inflating language, where you describe it's a, a distortion. It's a distortion of the world. So person A can do something. It's not remarkable. Person B does the same thing, but because of their identity, they're described in a way that makes them sound like they're unacceptable, problematic. You know, their language, the, the language describing what they did inflates them into a way that there's somebody to be reprimanded or put on a performance yeah. plan or whatever. And oh so that gosh. happens a lot to women, a lot, a lot. And it's 2023 and it's still happening. I mean, um, a lot. 
it's 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 remarkable to me to even think about. So, I mean, I think all of us have experienced at least one time in our life where something like this has happened. We've experienced the the inequities when it comes to this kind of stuff. But what here's the thing is like what do we do about it though? Like is there something we can do about it? I mean, yes. And so the thing that you just said, which is it's 2023 and it's still happening, absolutely supports the thing that I'm talking about now talking about very openly in talks in front of large groups of people where I'm like, if our language patterns stay the same, we just circle around in the same place. So our conscious thoughts are like, oh, that's ridiculous. But then the way that we judge people is stuck in these old timey ways of thinking and these these old-timey mental models that are supported. Let me give you another example, and then I'll tell you, uh, I'll ask you to, to follow up with me. And Because the answer is to uncover the patterns, recognize them, call them out when you see them, and shift so you're not part of these problematic patterns. So that's literally why I wrote the book. That's why I did that's why I do the workshops I do. That's why I work with executive teams, right? This is all the, this stuff. The example I'm going to give you is something that I've named. Because anytime you name something, this is part of the feminist idea, right? States from half a, half a century ago. If you name it and you define it, then people start to see it and believe it's real and you can shift it. I think a great example is slut shaming, right? Mm. It's like people start, now people are like, oh, I don't want to slut shame. It lets us know that we shouldn't be doing the thing that's called slut shaming, right? So suddenly there's a name for it that gets like traction and people are like, oh yeah, I don't wanna do that. Like, why am I monitoring only young women for sexual activity and availability? Like what, what, and penalizing them for that? Like, that's ridiculous. So a thing that I've given a name to, I gave the name in 2015 is called an unconscious demotion. I bet you've experienced it just looking at you. An unconscious demotion is when a person meets somebody else and makes a snap judgment about the job that they hold and they demote them into a much lower position, right? So they assume that they have a job that's lower prestige, lower status, requires less education and is usually lower pay. I will say that when I was a professor, the jobs that people thought I had often paid more than my professor job because professors are paid so badly. Yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm up near Silicon Valley, right? I'm in Oakland. I have multiple stories of women of color going to industry events and being handed dirty plates because people think they're there to clean up. Oh yeah. No. Yep. What? Yep. Yep. A Chinese architect talked to the New York times and said, it's not till the third meeting that people believe I'm the architect. They usually think I'm an assistant or an interior designer or a secretary. They can't look at a Chinese woman and think, Oh, she's the architect leading this multi-million dollar project. Right. I collect all these stories of unconscious emotions. And so these are the kinds of things that I'm saying, the snap judgment where somebody looks at somebody, especially a woman of color. In my research in the US, women of color are the most frequently demoted. I've got a story of a, a black doctor. She carries a, a laminated version of her medical license. I know the story because she was on a flight and you know, it's that thing that you see on TV or in the movie. Oh, does, is there a doctor on board? Because somebody collapsed or I don't know what the emergency was. So she says, oh, I'm a doctor. And the flight attendants say again and again, but really, but are you really a doctor? But are you sure? Because she's a black woman. They literally can't believe that she's a doctor. So she literally like a driver's license carries a medical license. So these are things happening right now, every day, every day. And so I don't, I, when 
your listeners, for those of you who identify as female and for, you know, this has happened to you, I don't want you to internalize this, right? There's a way that we have to start to push it out and be like, the message is saying it's obvious you're not competent or it's obvious you don't belong. And we have to push that out and be like, oh, that's an unconscious emotion. It's just an expression of an outdated understanding of the world. And it's somebody whose mental models haven't caught up to the world the way that it actually is. And so it's just calling it out. I mean, like yep. just just that example you gave me of that woman who is a doctor and who has to carry quote unquote proof yep. that she's a doctor. I mean, how would you even go about calling that out? Or is the act itself of having to pull out a card that says, hey, I'm a doctor. Is that enough? Well, since 2020, we've been talking a lot more explicitly about ally work at a lot of companies in 2020 and early 21, 2021 be like, come in and teach us about being an ally. Then, you know, the money dried up, especially in 2023. So, but I, I believe that your listeners probably care about ally work. So my experience with unconscious emotions is that just like that dissent, right? A lot of women are penalized for saying, actually, it's not like that, or actually I, that wasn't respectful to me. So it's not a good idea to call out your own unconscious emotion. This is where the ally work comes in. So we need somebody else to say, why can't you believe that a black woman is a doctor? Or why did you assume that this venture capitalist was here as catering staff? Or why did you assume that this neuroscience professor should clean the bathroom? You know, or why did you, I have so many stories of these. This is the ally work. This is the time to jump in. And let me give you a further example. And, and for people who buy the book, I give exercises where I'm like, here's how to avoid giving an unconscious emotion yourself. And here's how to start talking to people about it. Um, even more dangerous is outside the workplace where here in the US, it's black men and Latina men, right? Who often will prefer to be called Hispanic or Latino um, are believed to be criminal when they're just going about their day. So they're unconsciously demoted from regular person going about their day to a dangerous person, right? Mm -hmm. So they're in a Starbucks for five, five minutes and the manager calls the cops on them for trespassing when they're just waiting for their friend to show up or they're on a college tour. This is Native American teenagers on a college tour and somebody calls the campus cops because they're freaked out by these scary kids. They're literally kids just wearing concert t-shirts seeing, is this a school I can go to or... I have so many stories. Somebody calls the cops at a guy. He's moving boxes into the building. What kind of burglar is moving boxes into? But it's a mostly white apartment on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. This is a former Obama staffer, right? And so even like in a progressive building in a progressive city, you know, like with neighbors who think of themselves as open-minded, these things still happen. And so the more that we can teach people about it, so they can stop themselves or be an ally and call it out when it happens. If you're the person being seen as a criminal, you can't say you're only doing this because I'm black. But somebody else, like especially if you're a, a white lady, any middle-aged white ladies or near middle-aged white ladies, and the richer you are in a white lady, you can actually genuinely stop. Um, you can you can step in and really stop things from getting more escalated. Yeah, I mean, I feel like, gosh. I'm going to try not to dive into like this whole thing because I feel like you and I could really um, dissect some things because then that goes into the whole, you know, white savior, oh, yeah. blah, blah, blah. All, I feel like we could really start diving into some topics. Um, 
And I'm just so interested in the fact too, where it's just like, I don't, I, it just drives me insane that we are this far along in, in this world and we're still dealing with this stuff and this mindset and, you know, whether it comes from upbringing, uh, you know, media, whatever it is, it's just, I feel like, I don't know, it, it, it's a slow thing to change. It, it is, but, um, but I think change can happen. And so, I mean, it's so funny because my, my life is so dark. I just soak in these bad stories every day, right? So there are ways in which I'm so pessimistic and people are like, oh, I can't believe the progressive left just blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, you can't? Like, I can't, you know? People are like, oh, I can't believe da 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 I'm like, you can't? I'm like, I can. Like, I've just got a pile of data. Yes, I believe it. But I wouldn't have written this book or go out and do these things if I didn't think that people could change. And so there's a way in which when you're learning a foreign language, so in the U.S., we do the worst job of language teaching. We tell immigrants overtly and covertly, like my grandparents among them spoke a gazillion languages, maybe just six. But I wasn't raised with any of them because they were told, oh, if you speak any language other than English at home to your kids, they'll grow up with cognitive, you know, cognitive problems. Oh like this idea gosh. that bilingualism is an additive. That is, I'm going to tell you right now, that is the reason why I don't speak fluent Cantonese at this moment. In time. It's so frustrating. I could have grown up with five languages and I grew up with one and an eighth, you know, like the secret language my parents used to hide things. So I learned it a lot because I'm like, I'm very curious, you know. But so there's all these ways that we, in the U.S., we mostly learn foreign languages after we can turn them into native languages, right? So when puberty hits, a lot of our stuff shuts down, like our, our brain rewires. And it's like, okay, we're not going to put all that attention to language anymore. We got it. And now we're going to put things in other stuff like reproduction or whatever, right? So we know that if you have to learn another language starting in like seventh grade or whatever, that you have to practice a little bit every day and you have to make mistakes, but eventually you can get fluent in something and you start to see the world a little differently. Cause you're like, Oh, it can be called this, but you can actually also think of it this way because different languages mm -hmm. organize the world in different ways. Right? Like you don't have to mark that something's a plural all the time. Right? Like Chinese, like you, you don't have to, like if you grow up speaking English, you're like, I always have to know on the noun if it's singular or plural. Guess what? Other languages do it other ways and you can figure it out. I feel this way about inclusive language too. If you practice a little bit and you start to learn what the principles are underneath, you can start to make these tiny shifts. And eventually I'll tell you, I feel like my graduate school training gave me a superpower that I think of as x-ray vision. Mm -hmm. There used to be a lot of stuff that was very opaque to me and now people are like, I wonder why. And I'm like, oh, I'll tell you why. Because I see through to the skeleton and I see how things are connected. And what I'm trying to do is give people as much of that x-ray vision as possible. So it doesn't look like all these disconnected things. But you're like, oh, it's all related to women should speak less. And when they speak, it shouldn't be with authority. And, you know, like, like you can take all these things and boil them down to these very simple underpinnings. And so... I, yes, I'm very against white savior work. And yet periodically a white person can step in and do a whole lot of good, right? So it's not like the white savior idea is you hapless people of color in this high school or in this town or in this African village, you don't know how to 
run your own stuff. So I'm going to come in and tell you what to do. No, like I'm making an X with my hands like Mm -hmm. that. But a person can use all of the power that comes from belonging to a lot of dominant groups, right? The more dominant groups you belong to, the more power you have and the more people will listen to you. And you can take that power and use it for good and step in and say, you know, I I just want to point out that this person is clearly a doctor. What What's going on? Like, do you, do you genuinely believe that Black people can't be doctors? Do you genuinely believe that Black women can't be doctors? And then force people to see what their 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 message has been that they don't even know that they're putting across. So directed ally work to step in at a useful moment, thumbs up. White yeah. savior work where it's like, you people of color can't figure out what to do, thumbs down. Yeah, absolutely. So my question then is coming to our own subconscious in mm. our own language and biases that pop up because we're all we're all regardless of how we identify or whatnot, we have these thoughts. Yeah, everybody does. So how do we go about recognizing it in ourselves and changing those patterns? So I think that, so for example, I don't give unconscious bias trainings. Sometimes people will come to me and say, we're looking for an unconscious bias training. And I'm like, sure, I've got two slides. And then I do my training, right? Because I think the more that we dwell on how messed up our brains are and how we wish they could do better, we kind of go in circles, right? I think mm-hmm. of it as sort of like, like I've got this metabolic thing. And so until I figured out that there are certain foods I can't eat, I could eat 1200 calories a day and still gain weight, right? Because my body mm-hmm. wasn't getting the right signals. So when you're being so careful and you're still messing up, at certain points I'd give up and be like, I'm just going to eat that eight pack of Entenmann's donuts. Like, what does it matter if I'm so careful? And I feel like I see that with unconscious bias training where people kind of give up. They're like, if I'm so careful and no matter what I do, I'm always going to have bias in my brain. What does it matter? And they do the equivalent of like the donut egg pack. Mm. But if you think about language, language is something we have a lot more control over. So I think it's the best way to start. And one of the things like you, so you can, as you move towards more inclusive language, some of the things I suggest, for example, my sixth principle is recognize pain points. Because there are times that when you've grown up one way, I, I think I hear sometimes from people who are resistant. They're like, well, I wouldn't mind if someone said it to me. And P.S. I said that before I knew stuff. Well, I wouldn't mind if someone had said it to me. Why are you complaining about it? Not recognizing that the other person's lived experience was so different from mine that what was not painful for me was very painful for them, right? Mm -hmm. It's just, it's just like, no matter how much people tell me to enjoy eggplant, I'm not going to enjoy eggplant because my mouth tastes it like copper, right? Whatever it is, I've got some genetic thing. Or like you tell people to enjoy cilantro. Like there's some people, they're like, it's never going to. I'm like that with parsley. I can't do there it. There you go. It's oh, my, you know what? <laughs> and I grew up, my town was half Italian. So in principle, I should like parsley. I can't. I can't. I, it tastes like I, soap. I can't do it. <laughs> it's just like, or I'm always sad. I'm like, why did I add? I'm like, oh, freshen my dish with parsley. And I'm like, why did I do that? I'm so sad. Like now I can't even eat it. <laughs> yeah. So there are words that are like that for some people. Like a, a word I talk about in my book is exotic, Right. There are people for whom exotic is, yep, yeah, uh-huh, there you the go. Big, I just gave the biggest eye roll, y'all. The biggest eye roll because <laughs> I look at you and I'm like, I know what, I, so so both of us are coming. I believe both of us are not perceived as white women. The U.S. census says I'm white. I'm Middle Eastern descent, right? So, and I came out much darker and more quote unquote ethnic looking than my family, right? So my family are treated like white folk and I am not. So there are a lot, a lot of people in the U.S., for whom exotic is a word that has been used to describe foods or places, 
or music, and it's never been applied to them. And then there are a whole chunk of women, and I'm saying women, there are a whole chunk of people in the US, usually women, usually women who are perceived as not white, who have been told that they are exotic. And it's usually othering, focusing on difference, and it's usually sexualizing, right? So you're just trying to be in your workplace. Yep. And so the flavor of exotic for me is bad. Don't call me exotic. I've aged out of sexual harassment at this point. So I'm like, no more street harassment. Like it just ended a couple of years ago. And I'm like, so excited, so excited. But I've certainly had decades and decades of people saying stupid shit to me, like how exotic I am. One guy hitting on me at a lunch when I was a grad student decades ago He's like, oh, you're so exotic, your skin, your hair. I'm like, dude, you grew up 15 miles from me. Like we are both from Long Island and you're Irish and I'm not. I'm like, yeah, why Why are you now? <laughs> right? Like we both have grandparents who are immigrants. Like why am I the exotic one? And he couldn't unpack, right? Like he couldn't unpack it. But so these are the things where if you start to recognize pain points for other people, right? So- don't make a joke about this. Don't lightly talk about that. Like, make sure you're not misgendering people. The more you do research, I, I, I'll i say one more thing. I was giving a talk to a very techie tech company. I genuinely don't know what they do. Like, I did multiple things for them. I could not tell you what they do. They're big. No, no idea. Some back. It's so techy. It's so technical. So they had a lot of people who were just engineers. And so a colleague of mine and I were talking about inclusive language and we use the idea of articulate. Why is it not a compliment when, I, so when I've been told I'm articulate, it's always been a compliment. But when my colleague who was co-presenting, who's a black woman was told she was articulate, every once in a while it was a compliment, but usually it wasn't. So we were unpacking why. And so this group of white male engineers were so upset and they're like, how in the world are we supposed to know this? How in the world are we supposed to know this? I don't have black friends. I don't work with black people. You know, I didn't go to school with black people. How should I know? And I'm like, but so they, they tell on themselves. Right. You know? And I'm like, why? I'm like, there are plenty of black engineers out there. Like, why don't, why, why don't, why didn't you go to school with black people? Why don't you have black friends? Why isn't your neighborhood black? Like that's another story. But what I say to people is the more you do the research to follow the principles of inclusive language, the more your mental models will change and you're going to start to have a more accurate view of the world because inclusive language is accurate language. A lot of people feel like it's like being mealy-mouthed or pussyfooting around things or saying domestic engineer or whatever. And I'm like, no, like for me, inclusive language is content warning sexual assault. I talk to journalists. I'm like, you can't call that an inappropriate relationship. You call that rape, right? Mm -hmm. That person went to jail for felony counts of rape. Like you report that, like the word is rape. They're like, but it's an unpleasant word. I'm like, well, it's a more unpleasant thing to do, right? Yeah, you're so, calling it what it is. Call it what it is. So if you have to learn how to be accurate in your language and how to not tread on somebody's foot where you don't realize the foot's there, that's the way that we start to change our brains and our mental models. Because if you diversify your social media feeds, right? I, I miss Twitter. I miss Twitter. But I, I learned a lot. Like I followed disability activists. I followed black activists. Like I could, Asian activists. I could eavesdrop on all of these conversations that people were having with each other and not force people to educate me. Like, like I wasn't saying, here's another white thing that happens often or a male thing. Well, explain to me why. Like, dude, don't, no, go, go do your own research. 
I, I missed that. I but there are ways that just educate you. <laughs> I mean, serious, but there's some, or like, it's a pay me, like pay me and I'll educate you, but I'm not going to, you know, like a, a person in my family one time was like, well, what's rape culture? I'm like, absolutely not. We're hiking. I'm like a hundred percent. No, a hundred. He's like, well, I've got daughters now. I'm like, then just Google rape culture. Google, like like you educate know. yourself. Exactly. This is someone I care about a lot. I'm like, I'm trying to hike. Like, this is not. This I don't is want not to have this conversation on a hike. <laughs> exactly. But these are the things that the more people educate themselves to speak inclusively, which I say is just 21st century etiquette. Mm. Like it's just modern etiquette. What's different now? When I was growing up, I'm Gen X. We could just dismiss or de- be disrespectful of, or just pretend that a whole bunch of people didn't exist. Right. And yeah. so now the modern etiquette's the same as the old etiquette, but we're like, uh-oh. All those people that we're being shitty to, we shouldn't be shitty to them anymore. So, no facts. And I will tell you right now, I was born and raised in a really small farm town. Uh, mm. The population of Chinese people were my family. That was it. Oh, sure. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so it wasn't really very diverse. And then moving to San Francisco uh, before moving to LA was probably the biggest culture shock I have ever had. Um, as far as just who I was around, what I was experiencing. And then it, that move in itself really opened up my eyes to just like everybody's life experience is very, very different. And if you stay in one life experience, like you are going to have a limited view of the world. That's just, that's and, just facts. I, and I'll say that my students at UCLA sometimes would think, I mean, they were so good. I feel like I'm dissing them, but but they would say things like, well, we're so sophisticated. I'm like, but you understand LA culture. I'm like, if I drop you in North Carolina or if I drop you in Russia, you know, or whatever, like you, you, it's not like because you live in a diverse place, you understand all the things you understand the life experience of growing up in a diverse city, but it doesn't mean you understand people's life experiences elsewhere. I say that all the time because back in my hometown with my family, we have Sunday night dinner all the time. And I go when I, when I'm back there visiting and I will tell you the same, they, we have dinner every time and the, and the conversations that we have at dinner are very different than the conversations I would have in San Francisco at somebody mm-hmm. else's dinner table. They're just separate conversations. Um, and so it, it's the truth. It's just like, it's limited life experience. So it is really hard for relatability sometimes, especially if you're not exposed or you don't talk about it. I spent a lot of time, you know, in my early childhood being the only Asian kid. I, I've been yeah. told multiple times that I was the only Asian somebody knew. And I was like, please don't do that to me. Like, that's a lot. Yeah, like, am I, am I representing, <laughs> well, you know, at the time it probably wasn't all the way to a billion. Here. Yeah. Um, so there's that factor. But then on the other factor too, it's like, oh, well, you're the only like country person I know in, you know, a city. And I'm like, no, 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 don't put it all on me either. Like, yeah. diversify, educate. There's different yeah. things. Um. Yeah. You and I can go on forever and ever about this, but I would really love to tell our audience where to find your book. Sure. My book can be found everywhere, literally. So it's um, a paperback, so you can order it wherever you order paperbacks. It's an ebook, so you can read it as an ebook. And if you like the sound of my voice, I narrated it for a exciting seven hours and 56 minutes, but I did it nice and slow. So when you listen to it at 1.25 for, you know, then it, then it goes well. So anywhere you find audiobooks or eBooks 
or paperbacks, you can find it. And I don't mind if you get it through the library. I just had a friend request it through Chicago Public Library. I can read it in Oakland on Hoopla and Overdrive. So, I mean, request it from your library so other people get a chance to see it. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Did we even say the title of your book? Oh, I don't know that we did. Should we? (laughs) We don't know where to get it, but we didn't even tell you how to look it up. (laughs) Yeah. So it's called The Inclusive Language Field Guide. And let me tell you one more thing. It's presented as a business book, but it's secretly also a self-help and personal development book. And the other secret thing is that I wrote it thinking about family members of newly out trans and non-binary kids. Mm -hmm. So somebody has a teen or a preteen who's now out and they think about their parents or other family members and like, oh, fuck, like the things they're going to say. I literally wrote the book for them and I front loaded everything. So for these people, if you know somebody with newly out kids, you can get them the book and say, you only have to read to chapter three. I literally front loaded everything for those people who are like, I can't read a whole book, but it's the inclusive language field guide. I put a tool on the cover to appeal to men. It's a, it's a pair of binoculars because binoculars, you pick them up, few adjustments, suddenly you see a lot further than you could. Same thing with my book. You pick it up, you learn to make a few adjustments. Suddenly you're seeing things you couldn't before. Oh my gosh. I love it. Where can people find you, follow you, all the things? Sure. So my socials are, everything's going nuts with uh, algorithms right now. So you can find me. Trust me. I know. I'm so throttled in all these places. So I'm like, people like, don't talk about being throttled, but my LinkedIn stuff used to go viral every two months and I'm barely getting. So you can follow me on LinkedIn, but I don't know if you'll see my stuff. So I would say the best thing to do is find me on SuzanneWertheim.com and you sign up for my newsletter. I have a monthly newsletter where I give away tips and tricks and you can email me because I also have a monthly advice column where people email me questions and then I just give away free answers to oh common inclusive language oh questions. So SuzanneWertheim.com newsletter, best way. Oh, I love that. I love that so much. All right. Thank you so much, Suzanne. I really appreciate you and this conversation. I feel like I learned a lot too. Um, Thanks for listening, Slay Nation. I really appreciate your time. And as always, we will catch you next time.